And so in our third point today, as we come back uh, to complete uh, that message from last Lord's Day morning, we will be looking at Hebrews 2, hence why we read from Hebrews 2 also. But we come again, once again, to verse 5 of chapter 10 of Hebrews, where it says this, chapter 10 and verse 5, Wherefore, when he, that is Christ, cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. And so considering then, uh, or continuing I should say, the examination of the absolute necessity of the incarnation, absolutely necessary for the Son of God to become the Son of Man. And it was absolutely necessary, and we saw last time, that even under the, the full and rich and complex law of Moses as regarding the, the sacrifices, uh, the temple, the tabernacle service, and then the temple service, uh, that we saw that the ritual sacrifices were grossly insufficient. They were just insufficient because we saw four things that are mentioned uh, by Paul in the first four verses of chapter 10 is that these sacrifices of these bulls and these goats and these doves and, the, um, uh, and all the animals that were sacrificed and all the blood that was poured out is that ultimately it did not remove sin. It did not remove sin. So I'm recapping from last time. Uh, these sacrifices did not remove sin and secondly, they could not remove sin. So the very act of doing it, well, which was necessary, it was an act of faith and obedience. Uh, and, the, the, and the people of God um, and those who were saved, who, those who were true Israelites in the Old Testament, um, they did these things out of obedience. They looked unto Jesus, as it were, through these sacrifices as much as they understood. They had a, they had a burdened conscience and they knew that the Lord had said that do this and they would be forgiven and they did. But those sacrifices did not remove sin because they could not remove sin. The beast, the blood of, of beasts, of bulls and goats could not take away any sin. Uh, rather, Paul goes on to say that they reminded of sin. You're coming into uh, the tabernacle or then the temple and you're coming in and, and, and sacrifices are being made for what? For sin. And you may be part of the people for these, these, these great feast days that were there and you gathered in and, and saw the many, many uh, hundreds, if not thousands of, of lambs and goats and, and, and bullocks and doves being, being sacrificed for the nation, but also you would bring your own sacrifice. You would bring your own sacrifice for your own sin, uh, for your own cleansing, for whatever it might be, and that animal dying in your place reminding you of sin. The sacrificial system reminded you that you are a sinner before God and as we considered also that when we come into the presence of God in the tabernacle or the temple, we're reminding God of our sin. God, be merciful unto me, a sinner, as you're bringing that sacrifice for the cleansing. But also ultimately, this is what we understood, therefore, that they, these sacrifices did not satisfy God. They did, not sacrifice, they did not satisfy God because they were not the blood of His Son. Yes, they pointed to the blood of His Son. 
They made many pictures about the Son, about the perfection of the Son, that he was without blemish, without spot, that he was a young man brought to be sacrificed for the sins of his people. But these sacrifices of animals did not give that legal um, satisfaction, did not, did, not, did not give that full satisfaction where, whereby God could say, thy sins are forgiven thee. But it was, of course, with a look towards the blood that would yet be shed in time upon the cross. So we saw the ritual sacrifices were grossly insufficient. And secondly, therefore, the requirement to provide a sacrificial body. There had to be a body prepared. And, and that is all those two uh, things that we've just considered then, the, the, the ritual sacrifices and the gallons of blood and the thousands and hundreds of thousands of animals that lost their lives... Again, we're all pointing to the one body, the one shedding of blood, the one suffering and death of Jesus Christ, which is, which does remove sin, which can remove sin, uh, which causes the forgetfulness of sin and is fully satisfactory to God Almighty uh, for the removal of sin. And so he says in verse 5, wherefore when he cometh into the world, he saith, and speaking of the, sac the Old Testament sacrificial system, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared for me. A body, we could understand the meaning, a body for sacrifice. And so when we saw that the requirement to provide a sacrificial body, we saw that it had been promised and there are many promises throughout the scriptures speaking of the, of the need for the seed, that there would be a seed to destroy the work of the devil. Uh, and who this seed would be? Well, he would be the seed of Abraham specifically. Uh, also that he would be of the house of David, and therefore he would be of Judah. And many other aspects we could dip into and point at, uh, but we won't just for now. So there is a promise, but there was also a preparation. There was a preparation in, in, in Adam, uh, because, of course, Mary comes from Adam. We all come from Adam. But understanding also that there was a preparation even in the womb of the Virgin Mary to bring the Lord Jesus Christ into existence, that he had an earthly mother, uh, but he had a divine father, and that was all prepared. And we, won't, we didn't go into much detail then because we have gone in detail in that in time past. But there was a preparation and our body was prepared. And we thank the Lord that we have this body that was prepared. And a body that was prepared uh, to be a sacrifice for sin. And it is, of course, very, uh, a quite an astounding truth that, that, that when we come back to compare those two points, the sacrificial system and then the, the body that the Lord prepared to be the true sacrifice, is how much that one body is so much sufficient to pay for the sins of the whole world, of all sin that's ever been done from the first fall to the end when God says there'll be time no more, when all is finished and all those who are still in their sin are cast into hell and yet the blood of Jesus Christ sufficient to cover and pay for and wash away and purge every single sin that's ever existed and yet we know only applied to those that come to Christ in our experience and in the divine and eternal truth, those who are the elect of God, that's one and the same, of course. But we understand, therefore, that those many animals 
many liters of blood and costly animals. Think of an, of an oxen, the equivalent of a tractor, a, a huge uh, an expensive beast that would be needed uh, to, 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 to plow um, the, the, the fields. Um, and every other work that it would be used to, to pull the carts and all these things, an expensive beast, a costly beast, and yet then sacrificed, and the lambs and the sheep. I mean, essentially this is all, in many ways, these, these lives are the equivalent of money, but they are lives, they have beating hearts, they have blood in them, and then they're sacrificed. It costs the farmer, it costs the, the bringer of the sacrifice uh, greatly. And if they had no money, then even the cost of a dove or of a, of a pigeon would be brought. And the life would be poured out in that blood. And we consider how often that had been done. Year in and year out, the gallons and the gallons and gallons of blood, the death, the cost, and yet not one sin actually paid for. These are all signposts pointing to Jesus Christ throughout those, that history. And of course, even before Moses was given this system, all the patriarchs before him, all the blood that was shed, and think of Job sacrificing for his children, lest they have sinned against God, no doubt, of course, sacrificing for himself and for his wife, and all the other patriarchs bringing sacrifices, bringing us all the way uh, to uh, Genesis 4, where we have the first um, man bringing sacrifice with, with Cain. And Abel, bringing those sacrifices, of course, Abel, Cain did not bring a true sacrifice. Uh, he did not bring blood, of course. Just considering all those years from the beginning of, of time after the fall, all those animals, and yet they were insufficient, but they were sufficient in the sense that they pointed to Jesus and for that precious blood once poured out upon the cross of Golgotha. So, the, so we see the insufficiency of all the sacrifices, although they pointed to Christ. Let me see, therefore, the need for a real sacrificial body, a body that would be the sacrifice, that would be a perfect and holy body, a body for whom, and the blood being shed and the lifeblood being poured out, the life being ended, it would bring true satisfaction uh, to God. But that is uh, through way of our third point then, is the real identification to be made. The real identification to be made is the third point. Because the eternal Son of God who took upon himself a real human body, he had a reasoning mind and soul, and he did so, why? So that he could be fully identified with those, uh, with those whom he would save to have a full identification. Because in reality, of course, we cannot be fully identified with the ox, with the lamb, or with the goat. They are substitutes in, in, in many ways. They were a temporary substitute for Jesus Christ. They were a substitute for us and our sin, that they were killed and we weren't for sin. But they, of course, could not truly represent us. But Christ taking on human flesh and blood so that he could make that full identification, so he could stand in our place. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be spending time in Hebrews chapter 2 in this point. And firstly, let's see when we think about that real identification that is made, uh, we see something for, of the unity. The unity. We see in Hebrews 12 and verse 11. The necessary unity. 
Verse 11 says, For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. You see, we see that unity there. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And so in the Son of God becoming the Son of Man, Christ then, who is this God-man, can fully identify with the people he would save. And, and in order then for the Creator, who is Christ, the Creator, uh, to become one of his creatures, what did he do? Well, he, he, had to, he had to hide his glory. And we looked at that when we were considering the Mount of Transfiguration. The, the, the glory seeping through and shining through uh, the, the body which had been prepared for him. So he hid his glory and he humbled himself. He humbled himself greatly. And if we think of who God is and we think that he is this eternal and glorious king and he who is well aware of his own glory, he who is worshipped by myriads of angels nonstop, and he knows his value, he knows his glory, he knows that he is God, he knows that he is a great king, and yet he is also a meek God. And I'll just compare that with the pride of man, who are nothing, deserve nothing, and yet boast actually in nothing. But God is a meek God. And the Lord Jesus Christ reveals that when he calls sinners to himself, in the end of Matthew chapter 11, we know it, Come unto me, all ye that hate labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Christian, shouldn't we be meek and lowly of heart? Should not we be Christ-like in this way? Because God is meek and lowly in heart, and when we look at Jesus, we see the Father. He is the express image of God, and so understand that he who is infinite, eternal, eternally glorious. And some of those matters we'll examine this evening in the preaching and the preparation for the Lord's table. If he is yet so glorious and yet so meek and lowly in heart, what should his children be? And so this meek and this lowly Son of God humbled himself. He humbled himself to take on, on human form. But what is the human form that he undertook? Because this adds to the humiliation. This adds to the humbling. Not just that the creator comes in the form of the creature, but what a creature. What a corrupt creature. Corrupt, sin-filled, a creature that lies a, 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 a creature that cheats, a creature that murders and hates, a creature that hates God and hates his neighbor. Oh, doesn't hate all of them, hates the ones they like, and loves the ones they like, but hates everyone else. As the Lord Jesus Christ says, uh, don't sinners and publicans do the same? It's easy to love those whom you like, but everyone else is hated or ignored or despised. And essentially then, coming back to what I mentioned, the creature whom Christ was to become, as it were, was not humble and not meek. The exact opposite of who God is. God is holy and the creature is unholy. God is sinless. 
And yet the creature is full of sin and hate and everything that God finds abomination. You read through Proverbs, and here and there throughout Proverbs, it's revealed to us there are six things that God detests, yea, seven things that are an abomination to him. And he lists the sins of man, and we're all guilty of them, either in our desires, in our thoughts, and our lips, or with our deeds. And therefore, when Christ took on human form, when the incarnation became a fact, what an awful and degrading humiliation that was. And yet he did it gladly. He did it gladly. He did it willingly in order to save his people, in order to save the humanity of his people. And he comes in their humanity in order, as a third and most important step, to sanctify their humanity. And as we see the unity of that uh, mentioned there in chapter 2 and verse 11. Why? That they too would be without sin, that they too would be without pride, that they too would be a child of God, that they would act, think, feel, and be a child of God, whereby Christ can then call them what? Brethren. Because of, by the rebirth they have the same father and Christ will call them brethren. But not just brethren through a legal truth, but brethren because we're starting to look a little bit more like the true Son of God. We are finding those sins within us. We're convicted when we read the Scriptures and we're under the preaching, and we repent of them. Another sin cast away. Another bosom sin losing its hold. More mortification of the flesh. More crucifixion of the old man. That Jesus Christ can look at you and call you brother. And he, he says that to the girls as well and to the women. Brother, the sonship that we have. And that is therefore the union. Being united. Being of one. That union of fellowship between God and man that was tragically lost in the fall. And yet is to be restored through what? Through the gospel. Through the gospel, through the work of the gospel, through the promises of the gospel, through the Christ of the gospel. And the first step of that unity of God with humanity is through the person of Jesus Christ. Is through that person of Jesus Christ because in Christ himself is the union of God and man. The very being of Christ God-man speaks of that union that is to be found in him. And therefore, anyone and everyone that would seek peace with God, that would seek uh, fellowship with God, that would seek union with God, must come to God. How? Through this Jesus Christ, through this God-man. And he's the only way to approach him. You must have Christ as your brother. You must be born again. And that's the essence of that union that we would have with God. There are many false religions in the world that speak of unity with the Godhead. And, and, and two of the, the clearest ones we might think of are Hinduism and Buddhism. And they say that, you know, through their works of religion and through meditation and, 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 and through all these steps that you, that you can find in some way unity with the Godhead. Of course, for them, it is, it's, a, it's a false God. But that's what they speak of, a unity but it's a Christless unity, so there is no unity. They do not have the God-man, so they can't have any union of man with God. 
That's why it's a false religion. That's why it's a religion of the devil. It's one of the many doctrines of devils that are in the world, Hinduism, Buddhism, and anything related to it. And they promise the same lie as the devil did in Genesis 3, as he was speaking to Adam and Eve. He says, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, speaking of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he says, Then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So the devil then said to Adam and Eve, he said then, by an act of rebellion, by an act of sin, you would, you would become as gods, you would be divine, hey, that you would even be one with the divine. But that is a way of deceit and lies. There can be no unity with God. There can be no kinship to divinity to be found through what? Through sin. None at all. Only the wrath of God upon you. There is nothing to be found in what the works of man or, or what man thinks or what, what man thinks as informed by the devil. None of that will cause a union with God or restore a fallen union. That unity must be performed by God himself. It must be performed by God and it must be achieved through what? Through the incarnation of the Son of God and then the crucifixion of that body prepared for that end. The incarnation of the Son of God and the crucifixion of the Son of Man. There is that unity that Jesus Christ himself reveals to us in himself, but the unity that we can only have in and through Jesus Christ and that blessed incarnate body. But secondly, we see, as we look at down, move down to verse 14 of chapter 2 of Hebrews, and then we see fully, and I've mentioned it already, but we'll look at it in a little bit more detail. And secondly, we see the destruction of that body. So the unity that it that is there to bring and it shows, but also the destruction thereof. Verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also, that is Jesus Christ, himself likewise took part of the same, that is flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Glory, truth is that. Coming into our nature, taking on, not our fallen nature, but taking on our human nature, uniting it with his divine nature, uh, coming into our flesh to, to do what? Well, to destroy it, that on our behalf and for our sake and in our stead that this God-man could destroy our enemies. It's so important to understand that when he took on our humanity that Christ himself he didn't take on that humanity to become a king upon earth. Well, he is a king. All things are under his feet, including earth. But he didn't come to rule an earthly kingdom. He came to be a sacrifice upon the cross. That is the ultimate goal. He came to destroy the power of the prince of the air. He came to destroy the power of death, the power of sin. Some of which details we'll be looking at uh, this evening. And so a twofold destruction is pointed to here then. The destruction of the body that is prepared as a sacrifice and a destruction through that destruction. So through the destruction of the body that was prepared for the Son of God, the power of the kingdom of the devil would be destroyed. It would be destroyed and everything that's connected with the power of the devil. We think, we think of death we think of sin, and again tonight, 
And we'll be looking at some of those things. And we think then, this miracle of miracles, this, this greatest of miracle, and it really is the greatest of miracles that the eternal and infinite God could become a man with a, with a beating heart and blood. How, how could infinity become so limited? How could eternity become mortal? How, could, how can all this happen? And, and it, it is, it is physics-wise contradictory. It cannot be. But nothing shall be impossible for God and God made this possible and so here we have this miracle of miracles we have the incarnate son of God we have we have this infinite divinity in human flesh and blood uh, with hunger with thirst with the emotions of man all without sin and yet still we have this and the point of of this incarnation and the point of 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 bringing the son of God to become the son of man was to nail him to a cross and destroy the body which thou hast prepared for him for us and that was ever in the mind of God. That was in the eternal plan of God to do that, to humiliate his son. And the son says, I will be humiliated. It was, it was his desire to do the will of God. Ever in the mind that he would receive a body, become a true man, and suffer under the wrath of his father. That he would be destroyed that we would be saved. That we who trust in Him, truly trust in Him, would be saved. Which leads us to our last uh, sub-point. So we've seen the unity, the unity with us, the humiliation that Christ had to undergo because of His love for His people. Secondly, the destruction, what He further went, not just the humiliation, but the pain and the suffering that He underwent upon the cross taking upon him the hell of all of his people. Thirdly, the deliverance, because he is victor, because he is conqueror. Verse 15 of Hebrews 2 then, and deliver them who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. It was God's chosen way, the gospel, the incarnation, the suffering and the death. It was God's chosen way. Because it was the only way. How could God unite to himself and bring into his, his family, as it were? How could he bring them in and call them the, his children? How could that happen? It could not happen with only man. It must be the God-man. And when the God-man did that which God had planned, there was a deliverance and a full deliverance. By destroying the incarnate life of Christ, God was able to reunite Christ's people with himself. There was truly no other way. And that's why those, those false uh, cults like the Mormons and the, and the Jehovah's Witnesses and so many more have no gospel. They use the names of Jesus and they use the names of, 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 of Jehovah and Elohim and all. They use these names but they deny the divinity of Jesus Christ. If you deny the divinity of Christ, and yea, if you, divide, you deny the humanity, there are even those that would deny the humanity of Jesus Christ. There is no gospel. That You have nobody to cause your union with Christ, to restore your union with God, I should say. 
If you do not have a God-man, if you do not have the incarnate Son of God being also at the very same time the Son of Man. And he died, as we see there, verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. And he did die, and he has destroyed the power of the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. All people, because of sin, must die. Every graveyard, even crematoria these days, you see, are all witnesses to this truth. That the person died, why? Because they were a sinner. Now, some of those were redeemed sinners. Some of those were believers. Some of those had their, their heart and their soul washed in the blood of Christ. And they have a great, a, a great uh, home in heaven at the moment for their souls. But because they had sinned, they died. And it is the ultimate, there's the last enemy the Bible calls. And for the majority of people, yes, you will have some who are maybe disturbed in the head or have hardened their hearts so much that they say, oh, I'm not afraid of death. But of course, when it actually comes to the moment of death, they're not embracing it with open hands and arms. So everybody's afraid of death. Christians are afraid of death. Paul talks about in, in the many struggles that he had and the shipwrecks and, and, and the beatings and the whippings and whatever, that he had many fears. So being a true biblical Christian doesn't mean suddenly you have no fear of death. But we understand this, that the, the death has been destroyed. Where is the, the sting of death? It's gone. Because that sting, to use the language, the sting of the scorpion of death, yet went into Christ and does not come into us. So naturally we're fearful. It's an unnatural thing. But then again, sin is also unnatural. But see, they're, they're bound to it. They're, we're that bondage, it says here, in all their lifetime, subject to the bondage of the fear of death. Full of that fear. And, and that bondage has that word that has the root in it, bond, to unite and, and bound. The condition of being bound points to the curse that has come on every member of humanity, young and old, from the fall. Every member of humanity, I should say, that has a human father and human mother. Because there is that one exception, the Lord Jesus Christ. So bondage to the devil, slavery to sin, bound to the wages of death, which are death itself. But Christ was come to deliver his people from all their bondage. It is only the Son of God that can set you free, that can make you free completely. Although many Christians walk around with all sorts of bondage in their head and in their heart. But, but Christ did not come to keep you in bondage. As we hold on to past experiences and past bitterness and, and, and dreadful things may be. But we're not walking in the freedom that Christ has offered we're holding on to things, we're holding on to grudges, we're holding on to pain, we're holding on to memories, we're holding on to sin. But Christ came to deliver his people from all of their bondage. And he becomes as one of them. And he lives a life that they could not live and then dies a death in their place. Christ, our perfect substitute. So no longer we need the goats or the lambs or the oxen because they were insufficient anyway. But then the Lord provides, the Lord gives. For God so loved 
the world that he gave his only begotten son. And then the Lord himself says that he was sent. He was given, he was sent. He came in the form of man to do the will of God as our perfect substitute. And even now in heaven, our perfect substitute is there still standing in our place. When the Lord sees the sin of his people, he can look to Christ and see that blood that speaks better things than that of Abel's. Which brings us to our final point then. So we've seen that the ritual sacrifices were grossly insufficient, but they were wonderful signposts. Therefore, the requirement to provide a sacrificial body Some things we've just touched upon there as they were mentioned to us in Hebrews 10. Thirdly, the real identification to be made that Christ became as one of us yet without sin. He became, he took on our form. He humbled and humiliated himself in order to deliver us. And then finally, the righteous substitute that was given because there are details and we'll come back now to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews, turn with me back to Hebrews chapter 10, although we will point to chapter 2 once. Because chapter 10 gives into more detail about what this incarnation was all about. And so we've hinted at it already, but we see firstly in verse 7 that Christ was a holy offering. In verse 7, it says, then said I, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. And then in parentheses it says, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. See, he comes to do the holy will of God. He comes, and, and it is a, a statement that is made by the Son of God himself. I come. I come from heaven. I come sent by the Father. I come now in human form that here we have the holy, perfect, sinless, and unsinnable, or impeccable as we might say, but unsinnable, unable to sin, God-man Jesus Christ Savior has now incarnate and he is brought in the world to do what? To do the will of God, and that will of God is revealed in the Scriptures. It's written about me. And as we know from the Lord himself, that he only spoke the words that his Father had given him. Not adding to it, certainly not taking away from it, but doing that which the Father had commanded him to do, and lo, I come to do thy will, O God. To do the will, we're not going to go into those details now, the covenant of redemption, to carry it out, to redeem a people. He's also come, as is often promised, in the Scriptures, as I've just pointed to, but as a fulfillment of those promises. There's many, many promises that God made from the very beginning, immediately after the fall. The gospel promises, the first gospel promise, and all the other promises that were made. Here we have Jesus Christ. Here I come to fulfill those promises in the Scriptures, because God keeps His Word, which means, sinner, that if you, you come to the Lord and you repent of your sins and you desire to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that you turn away from your sins and you turn to God, the promise of the gospel is that God will receive you, that God will forgive you, that God will accept you because of Jesus Christ. All of those glorious promises, 
casting all your cares upon him. He is that promise, for he cares for you. All of those truths. And so here we see then 4,000 years of human history and, and wickedness of sin, and then Christ appears, a body was prepared for him, fulfilling the promises of God to the letter. And as we've touched upon, he's coming with a divine purpose, and it's all according to a divine plan. So Christ is that holy offering that has come to save his people. But Christ is secondly a new offering. He's a new offering. Verse 9 then of Hebrews 10. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. And that's really the uh, summing up of the first two points as I mentioned in the introduction. He is a new offering. He's come to do away with the first covenant, with its animal sacrifices and its rituals and its cleansings. Because he has fulfilled all its demands, he has fulfilled all its foreshadowings, and then by sacrificing himself, he has brought the one true and acceptable shedding of blood for sin. So he fulfills it all and he replaces it all. So we have the old covenant is, is fulfilled by Christ, is fulfilled in the sacrifice of Christ, and then we understand he has established a new covenant, or he has, we could say, in himself he has renewed the covenant. So Christ is a holy offering, he is a new offering. We understand also that he's a one-off offering, a one-for-all-time offering. We see that in many places in Hebrews, and in Hebrews 10 also. Uh, by verse 10, it says, By the which will we are sanctified, that is the will of God, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once. Once. And they've added the words for all to give a full understanding of that, what that word once means. Once. Once and for all would be modern English. And then he compares in verse 11 with the priesthood that was still in existence in the temple in, 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 in those early New Testament times. He says, but then verse 12, but this man, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. And then verse 14, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Which brings us back then to chapter 2. And verse 11, that he is the one that sanctifies and those who are saved by him are the ones that are sanctified and we are one. We have our union with Christ and therefore with God. So he's a one-off offering. He is therefore in that one-off offering. He's a, he's a sanctifying offering. A sanctifying offering set apart from the world. Set apart for God to be Christ's people, to be, even more so, Christ's bride. And that's what we're to be. We are to be continually sanctified by Jesus Christ, by the Word of Christ, by the Spirit of Christ. And if we're not, then we're not making diligent use of the means of grace, but we must be continually sanctified. The Shorter Catechism makes it very brief. It says sanctification, that is the making holy, is the work of God's free grace. In other words, we're not earning it, we're receiving it. 
but we must receive it. We must embrace it. And it goes on to say, whereby we are renewed in the whole man. All of us, emotions, body, soul, thoughts, desires, whatever. Renewed in the whole man after, that means according to the image of God. And are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. And that's God's ultimate purpose as we've already looked at. In his in sending Christ to be that sacrifice, first of all, uniting himself with mankind, and then that God-man uh, dying on the cross to deliver his people so that his people would be a holy people. And not just on the outside being religious, not just having great thoughts about your own religiosity, but being truly holy according to the Word of God, which means being submissive as Christ was submissive, being meek as Christ was meek and is meek. Being holy as God is holy. Being more Christ-like. And we keep using this expression that it is the Lord's will that we would be Christ-like. But do you pray about that? Do you call upon the Lord? I lost my temper again. I said something I shouldn't have said. Do you repent of it and desire that the grace of God that you would be more Christ-like? Because that is God's ultimate purpose in sending Jesus not to, fill, not to fill buildings full of people who've learned to sing a, a hymn and, and can listen to a sermon, but that their lives personally would be drastically changed and altered and become more like His Son. That sacrifice of Christ, does it have no effect in your life? Does it have no effect? Has it not made you more gracious and more humble and more like Jesus who is meek and not pride-filled? As the end goal is the ultimate point of this. To remove all stain and all habit of sin that is still within our sinful nature. He's a holy offering. He's a new offering. He is a, a one-off offering. He's a sanctifying offering. And then we finally we see that Christ's blood seals that new covenant. Christ's blood seals that new covenant, but it is in so many ways and time is against us, and we will take that little point, because that's a sermon in and all of, of itself, as we consider that the blood of Christ seals a new covenant, a new covenant between his people and God, between us and Jesus. And it is an eternal covenant, a glorious covenant. And as with all covenants of God, it cannot be broken. This covenant cannot be broken. We are by nature covenant breakers, but God has made sure that we have a new covenant head who on our behalf, unlike Adam, this second and last Adam, will never break that covenant. And so we can look unto Jesus as the author and the finisher of our faith, as the head of a great covenant that he paid for with his own precious blood. And you know, we've only scratched the surface as often is the case when we're considering, about, considering the absolute necessity of the incarnation. And we'll leave that there and look to the Lord's blessing upon the going forth of his word even this morning. Amen. Let us pray. Our merciful and glorious and loving heavenly God and Father, what love is this that would give and send thine only begotten Son 
and would have him to be humbled to become as a creature and Lord and then enter into that world full of spiritual darkness and wickedness yea even amongst his old covenant people who without the work of grace hated him for he had no respect to their religious deeds and efforts for he knew that they were as worthless they were more worthless than even the blood of goats and bulls we thank thee for sending thy son forgiving him O father to take on our form and yet without sin our Lord that he lived that gloriously holy life without any sin with no wrath upon him for himself and therefore he could stand in our place and take thy wrath for our sin he could die in our place he could drink to the very uh, dregs of the cup of God's wrath he removed our hell he drank it completely there is no more hell for those who are in Jesus Christ there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus what a glorious body and yet sacrificed and yet Lord when we consider that he rose again from the grave on the third day what a power in the body and the blood of Jesus that he defeated sin and death and the devil Oh Lord grant us grace that we would be more like him we confess that we are weak that we can be so carnal grant us O oh Lord grace to be more like Jesus we pray thee in his name and for his eternal glory Amen Amen please take uh, up your songbooks to hymn 683 him 683 visit us Lord with revival stricken with coldness and death where is our hope of survival save in thy life giving breath let's stand to sing hymn 683 and remain standing for the benediction please <laughs> 